As I invite Pastor Nate up, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our children to Children's Church. Pastor Nate Kiesel is a church planter uh, in Jeanette uh, with Mosaic Community Church, and he is here to preach uh, the word to us today. He's been here a few times in the past, and uh, I've known Nate for about 10 years now. And, uh, and uh, Nate, um, just, just keep it up. Uh, but you've set the bar high previously, so I've never not been blessed when you've preached. So, Lord, would you come bless uh, Nate? Would you come bless us, please? Thank you. Thank you. I am super excited to be here with you this morning. Your continued partnership with us in the gospel, in specific, uh, in the mission in Jeanette, has been a source of great encouragement, strength perseverance. And so I bring with me this morning gratitude from Mosaic Church in Jeanette. So thank you. This morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you and want to turn there, we'll be uh, starting in verse 6, or you can follow along in the bulletin. Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We pray this morning that by your spirit you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we leave here this morning encouraged and changed by your word and the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, I was reading an article, whether it was a reputable source or not, uh, you might be able to judge. I'm not a scientist, but it was a scientific article. And it was talking about the importance of a certain substance to the existence of life on Earth. Now, if you remember from science class in school, there is a balance or a connection between plant life absorbing carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen and us breathing in oxygen and releasing carbon dioxide. Well, what this um, article said, that it is estimated that up to 70% of the oxygen that we breathe comes from marine plants, in specific, phytoplankton. 
Phytoplankton apparently is essential to life on this planet because of the massive amount of oxygen it releases into the atmosphere. What this article went on to explain is that recent scientific evidence has proven a connection between a certain substance and the growth of this phytoplankton. Apparently, phytoplankton dwells on the surface of the ocean, while whales will often dive deep below the surface to feed and then carry vital nutrients to the surface where they expel these nutrients out as fertilizer for the plankton. Without these nutrients being carried from the depths of the ocean to the surface by whales, phytoplankton would not flourish nor produce the amount of oxygen that we depend on to survive. Whale expulsion apparently plays a very important role in life on this planet. Now, if I'm honest with you, sure, I get it, it makes sense, but I just don't think about this process on a daily basis to the importance of my life. Unfortunately, I think for many of us, we treat the Holy Spirit in the same way. When we think about it, sure, we realize how vital he is to our lives as Christians, but most of us just don't think about him much. But in our passage this morning, Jesus impresses the importance of the Spirit to God's mission in the world and our lives as Christ's followers. Let's look at it together. The first thing we see is that the disciples here have gathered to ask about the significance of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Look with me at verse 6 again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, all of the Gospels end with an account of Jesus' crucifixion, his death, burial, and his historic bodily resurrection from the dead, which we remember and celebrate every Sunday when we gather together. But why do we make such a big deal of the resurrection? Why do we celebrate a man coming back to life some 2,000 years ago in the Middle East? So what? And that's the same question that the disciples ask here as the book of Acts picks up where the gospel accounts leave off. The first three verses I'll read for you. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus had spent three years teaching and preaching, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, casting out demons, walking on water, calming storms, performing many signs and wonders. And he lived the majority of that time with 12 men that he loved, discipled, and taught. Among those things that he had taught them was that he would be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests who would reject and condemn him to death. They would turn him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged, and then crucified. And the disciples, well, they would all desert him. But on the third day, he would rise again. And it had all come true, every last word of it. And for 40 days after his resurrection, he had appeared to them. He spoke and walked with them. He ate meals with them, appeared to over 500 of them at one time, had them stick fingers inside of his nail holes and side. Why? To prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was true, that the resurrection had happened. In our very own legal system, someone can be convicted of a single act 
and spend their entire life in prison, even be put to death on the testimony of a single credible witness with some corroborating evidence, or on the testimony of two witnesses. Why? Because it proves guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and that is for one act on one day. Jesus amassed hundreds of eyewitnesses who not only saw but heard, touched, and ate with him over a space of 40 days. How is that for reasonable doubt? And here, the disciples, they want to know, what is the significance of all of this? What does it mean? Does it mean you're at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a good question. What does the resurrection mean? What is the significance of Christ's resurrection for human history, for them then and for us now? What does it mean for your life today? What should you do about it? Have you answered that question? Have you even asked it? The disciples do. And Jesus tells them that the significance of the resurrection is the outpouring of the Spirit. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 again. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus here doesn't correct them outright. He doesn't say, I'm not at this point restoring the kingdom to Israel. But instead, which is very Jesus-like and very patient, I might add, he redirects them. He says, that's not yours or for you. The times or epochs are the Father's. They are his to be decided and concerned about. Yours is something else. First, it is the receiving of power by the outpouring of the Spirit. And Jesus had told them this very thing a few pages back in your Bible in John chapter 16. I'll read for you verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It was to their advantage, he said, that he go away, that he die, be buried, and resurrected, because then the Holy Spirit would come and they would be filled with power. The same spirit that had hovered over the deep in Genesis 1 and at God's word brought forth the world ex nihilo or out of nothing. He creates life within the dead, cold, fallen, evil heart of man. It's called regeneration, recreation, or new creation. It's why Paul calls us new creations in Christ. Regeneration, you see, is a supernatural work of God alone. One we do not instigate or participate in. The Spirit takes up residence within our hearts and brings life out of death. The Spirit then creates faith by which we lay hold of Christ and are united to Him. Romans says we are united with Him in His death, meaning that since we deserve to die for being rebels and sinners and Jesus did not, yet on the cross God poured forth His righteous wrath against our sin on Him, his death is accepted as our death. It is as if we have died. And while our physical bodies may one day die, we will never die spiritually or eternally. And so by the Spirit, we are united with him in his resurrection. Just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, not only do we have the sure promise of our own bodily resurrections from the dead, but we also have resurrection life now. 
The Spirit dwells in our hearts, sanctifying us more and more. The Westminster Catechism says the Spirit enables us to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. You see the resurrection metaphor there. The Spirit and resurrection are tied together. It's by the Spirit that we walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the indwelling Spirit, this resurrection life, it is a down payment guaranteeing our eternal inheritance in Christ, eternal life. Now we've tried to explain some of these things to my seven-year-old daughter, Leah, but the significance of the resurrection for her is really tied around Easter, Easter baskets, egg hunts, bunnies, specifically chocolate bunnies. She loves chocolate. And that's our fault, but I mean, it, it is fun, right? But the significance of Easter or the resurrection for her is not yet the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The meaning of Easter or the resurrection for the disciples was something different as well. Why were they concerned here about the kingdom being restored to Israel? Well, their interactions throughout the Gospels seem to tip us off a bit that it had to do something with power, prestige, and glory. They were continually arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. The significance of the resurrection was probably tied for them to a need for comfort, security, stability, and ease associated with the blessing of their nation. I'm not so sure that our understanding of the significance of the resurrection for our lives is all that dissimilar. How many today view Christianity, the resurrection, as being about making our lives easier, more comfortable, more stable and secure? Is the great blessing of the gospel my own personal peace and affluence? My needs for relationship and community being met, being equipped to be a better person, having my best life now. The disciples asked, will you be giving us our best life now? And Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the Spirit would be power for missions. Look with me again at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus says here, to the end of the earth. Today we can travel to the end of the earth by plane in a matter of days. Or communicate a message uh, basically anywhere in the world via the internet instantly with the stroke of a key. I've talked face to face over Skype with one of my friends while I was in Jeanette, Pennsylvania, and he was in Accra, Ghana, Africa. The end of the earth means nothing to us. But to them, even if they were to send a letter, someone had to carry it. And Paul, who probably traveled the greatest distance of all the apostles, he suffered sorely for it, shipwrecked and things like that. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You get the point. 
to the ends of the earth was no small task. And yet, it was the very purpose for the pouring out of the Spirit, so that they might be his witnesses to the end of the earth. You see, the Spirit is power for impossible missions. The Spirit is power for impossible missions. Jesus, after being raised from the dead on Easter, says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <clears throat> Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. And here in our passage, passage, he says, the power for that mission is the Spirit. The Spirit is a missionary spirit. You cannot have the Spirit and not be on mission at some level. How many Christians have the Spirit? All of them. Anyone who follows after me, Jesus said, will be made a fisher of men. But you see, not only is the Spirit power for us for missions, it is the Spirit's work of converting the lost. We can't reach into anyone's heart. We can't argue anyone into heaven. The conversion of even one sinner to Christ is a supernatural miracle of God likened unto the power exerted at the creation of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, when did he say that? At creation. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's conversion. In 2011, Volkswagen put out a commercial called The Force. I don't know if you've seen it. It had a little kid who was dressed up as Darth Vader, and he was going around the house trying to use the force. He tries to use it on his teddy bear and on the dog, tries to use it on his lunch, and each time, you know, it doesn't work, so he drops his head. His mom slides his lunch over to him. But then his dad pulls up in, the part, in a, his driveway, of course, with a Volkswagen, comes in the house, and the kid is out there in front of the car and goes to use the force, and the car turns on. And the kid's absolutely shocked. And then it pans into the kitchen where dad has started it with the automatic starter, right? But I think this is how we often view missions, right? We think it is us who does it, but it's actually dad by his spirit. But the spirit does it through the gospel, through his word, through us as witnesses on mission. And so a greater outpouring of the spirit means greater revival of missions and conversions. Is this how you view God's Holy Spirit, as a missionary spirit? When we pray for God to fill us with his spirit, when we sing songs like God revive us again, when we celebrate the resurrection, this is the implication. Missions, witness, evangelism, disciple making. It's why we're here and God doesn't immediately translate us to heaven upon conversion. So the question is, will you go? Or will you sit, soak, and sour, as one has said? Jesus told them the resurrection meant spirit-empowered missions, and then he floated away. Jesus ascended into heaven. Look with me at verses 9 through 11 again. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here they are. They've gathered at the Mount of Olives, the place where they had gone with Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, where he had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Although this probably happened on the backside of that mountain near Bethany. And they asked him what it all means. And he tells them he will pour out his spirit from heaven. And then 
he just floats away like a balloon when someone lets go of a string. And the disciples, they just stand there looking up into heaven, gazing intently, the text says. But why? What are they looking for? Are they expecting something more? I mean, that's it. That's the grand finale. No great fireworks show, no rending of the sky, no bright spectacular lights. And so two angels appear and stand among them and ask, what are you guys doing? Maybe they were wondering where he was going. I mean, where was he going? Well, believe it or not, we actually have an answer in the Old Testament, a picture in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest dressed in his royal priestly garbs with the breastplate that had, breastplate that had the stones on it with each name of the 12 tribes of Israel on it would enter into the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where only he was allowed to go and only once a year and not without sacrifice of blood, to take a sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat representing the throne of God in order to atone for the sins of the people. Hebrews 8 speaks about this earthly temple or tabernacle and says that it was actually a picture, a copy of the heavenly one. And Hebrews 9 mentions Yom Kippur in specific and then says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? That's where Christ went. And in doing that, he purified us. He bore our names on his chest, so to speak, into the heavenly tabernacle, sprinkled his blood on the heavenly throne, so to speak. And then rather than leave as the Old Testament high priest did each year, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high until all things would be brought into submission under his feet. And then he poured out his spirit. And the result? Revival. Acts chapter 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And then Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith at once. The great truths of Scripture that Jesus has ascended into heaven that he is our great high priest interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, seated, enthroned with all authority in heaven and on earth as his, is that he is bringing all things into submission under his feet. Jeanette, Pittsburgh, the United States, Asia, Africa, all. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And what is 1 Corinthians 15 about? The resurrection. The resurrection means the submission of all things to the Son. By the gospel going forth, by the power of the Spirit through his people on mission. I want to repeat that one more time. 
Resurrection means the submission of all things to the Son by the gospel going forth, by the power of the Spirit through his people on mission. Jesus tells them this, floats away, and how do they respond? They gather to pray. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The response of the disciples to the great truths that we just looked at and Jesus' promise to pour out his spirit <coughs> His ascension into heaven to be enthroned and bring all things into submission under his feet was to withdraw together and pray. Why? Because they knew they couldn't do it. They knew they were insufficient for such a task. They knew that if God didn't do something, if he didn't cause all of this to happen, nothing would happen. The disciples, you see, don't withdraw to the upper room to strategize and plan. They didn't meet to figure out what resources they had and how best to disperse them to reach the ends of the earth. Okay, Peter, you stay here in Jerusalem. James, you take a boat to Spain. Uh, Thomas, you've got Great Britain and Russia. Anybody want Russia? No, they said, we can't do this. Peter, you're a coward. Thomas, you doubt. James and John, you're a bunch of hotheads, and we're all uneducated Galileans. But God, you're God, and you can do anything you want in any way you want, with anyone you want. This is what you said you want. You do it. Please. You see, prayer is simply a conversation with God. That's all it is. It's a child coming to a loving father saying, Dad, we need you. It's a humble reliance upon God to fulfill that which he has promised because we are helpless and hopeless on our own. Spurgeon once wrote, the sweetest prayers God ever hears are the groans and sighs of those who have no hope in anything but his love. Psalm 102.17, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. But why don't we pray? We don't think we're destitute. We think we can do this on our own. By not praying, we are saying, I got this, God. I can love my wife without your help. I can raise these kids. I can solve this problem. I can work this job. I can live the Christian life, resist temptation, serve like Jesus, reach my neighbors, fix this church, fix my community, plant other churches, make your kingdom come, bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven. I got this, God. I don't need you. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Lord, have mercy on Lord, make us a praying people. Pray for God to pour out his spirit. In 1859, revival broke out in Ulster, Ireland. I'm going to rely heavily here on quoting historical accounts, but one historian records, in this revival, whole towns were awakened. One minister wrote, the problem used to be getting people into the church. The problem then was getting them out. The benediction would be pronounced over and over again, but each time people would break forth anew in praise and the weeping of the penitent would be heard. 
The, per- the churches could not even contain all the people coming to pray. Even the large buildings began to be insufficient space, and so they met in the highways and open fields. It is recorded that 20,000 gathered at one time at the Botanic Gardens. People would crowd into churches all hours of the day and then send someone to hunt down a minister and have him dragged from whatever he was doing to come and lead a service. Ministers would often wake to a crowd of people in their homes each morning begging to hear the gospel. And who was the man whose preaching sparked such a revival? No one. It was the Holy Spirit. It began by a handful of people gathering to pray for revival. One historian writes, it was a work wrought largely through humble and local means. Hundreds of the men and women who exhorted and prayed and visited with such ardent love for God and souls were mill hands, porters, shopmen, plowmen, and the like. Their ordination was that of the pierced hands. Their testimony was in the power of the Spirit. Their burning zeal, itself a prime characteristic of revival, had no touch of petulance or pride or self-assertion. Their warnings were in the spirit of him who wept over the city that knew not the hour of its visitation." He brought me up also out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. This was the keynote of all their plain-spoken words. Within two months, it's recorded that Andrew Bonar also found himself in the midst of revival in Scotland. And on September 10th, he wrote this in his diary. This has been a remarkable week. Every day I've heard of some soul saved among us. All classes became interested in salvation. Backsliders returned. Conversions increased. And Christians desired a deeper instruction in spiritual truths. Families established daily devotions. And entire communities underwent a noticeable change in morals. Similar changes were noted as the revival spread to Wales, England, and beyond. But the surprising part about this, it was not led by celebrities, but by ordinary people praying. One historian writes, there was an absence of great names connected with the revival. Lay people in prayer was the prime instrument used by God in awakening the people. There are records of one humble Christian woman leading 20 prostitutes to Christ, and it's estimated that at the end, over 100,000 people had come to faith in Ulster alone. You can't make this happen. No one can, no matter what you do. But God can. Is God less willing to hear the cries of his people today than he was in 1859? Is God less willing to hear the cries of his people today than he was in 1859? What is the significance of the resurrection for us today? Is it comfort and ease, prestige or glory, security or personal peace? Do we stand together sometimes looking up into heaven, waiting for something more, waiting for Christ to return? Or is it spirit-empowered missions and prayer for revival, for God to pour out his spirit? Let your voices ring in the ears of God. To be a church on mission, we must be a church on our knees. God can do more in one instance than we can do in centuries of planning. I don't know how you parents here feel about sleep training. You know, about letting your child cry it out until they learn to self-soothe or fall asleep on their own. But honestly, I hate it. Sometimes it works, but I hate it. But after a couple weeks of our son Uriah fighting us at bedtime, 
waking up six to seven times a night, spending entire nights in the rocking chair, fighting to stay awake and fighting his screams and kicks and cries. We decided that it was necessary for his health and maturity and for our own sanity. And so, one night we went through bedtime routine, bath, diaper, jammies, feed, rock, and then we laid him down, awake, and left the room. A few seconds later, the whimpering started, <laughs> then the crying, then the blood-curdling screaming. If you've ever heard it, you know it. And we tried it just a couple of times, and it wasn't long before my wife and I would start fidgeting. And one of us would stand up and start pacing the floor while the other tried to talk them down. <laughs> you know this is best. We have to do this. But there's something about the cry of your own child. You hear the anguish, and you cannot resist for long. God is a better father than you or I. But for some reason, we have lost the persistent determination of our childhood. We give up. We don't let our anguished cries for God's spirit to ring in the Father's ears till he can resist no longer. The disciples wanted to know the significance of the resurrection. Jesus told them it was the outpouring of the spirit for missions, and they cried out for it. Cry like Uriah until he responds. Pray he would make Pittsburgh like Ulster. Join Mosaic as we cry out for this for Jeanette. Join, form prayer groups. Join the Praying Life Seminar in January. And pray for the outpouring of God's Spirit. Let's pray that thing right now.